Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep within us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, Jesus, for your sake and for your glory. Amen. Now, 2 Timothy is a letter written to a Christian leader, a Christian minister. The letter teaches us what a Christian leader or a Christian minister is to be like, what a leader fit for purpose is like. And that is relevant to us all for those of us in leadership. This is what we are to be like for us all. This is what we are to look for in our leaders and hold them accountable to. It is legitimate, though, to think of Christian leadership more broadly. Yes, it refers to people like me and other elders in churches, but numerous people in a church like Chalmers are given leadership responsibilities. Numerous people. Whether it is women's ministry, student ministry, children and youth ministry, many of you are leading small groups. Many have leadership roles beyond the local church in this country or overseas, whether in Bible college, the Boys Brigade, or a CU exec. These examples are real, all from conversations I've had with people this week. Some of you here will have ministry leadership roles in the future in churches or in other contexts. And so it is legitimate to think of Christian leadership in that broad sense and to apply the teaching of this letter accordingly. Moreover, all Christians, whether they are in leadership roles or not, are called to the same qualities of discipleship, called to imitate the example of the Lord Jesus, whose picture is behind the picture painted here in 2 Timothy 2 of the Christian leader. This chapter, for those of you who are at school, for example, is an excellent chapter for a young Christian seeking to live out their faith distinctively in a tough context like high school. When we lived and worked in London, I knew someone who had his portrait painted. And uh, so I learned what happens when you have your portrait painted. Here's what happens. Maybe some of you have had your portrait painted. It normally doesn't happen till we're dead. Uh, the artist takes a series of photographs, still photographs, of their subject. They complement the photographs with a number of pencil sketches drawn in a number of sittings when the subject is in conversation with the artist. And a good portraitist is able to embrace character and personality in these sketches, and thus in the finished portrait. Now, Paul's portrait of the Christian leader of the Christian is a blend of six pictures or six character sketches. And you'll see there on the sheet what they are, the soldier, the fighter, the one who seeks to please his commanding officer, who does not desert, the athlete who grafts and trains and perseveres and does not break the rules and anticipates the crown, third, the farmer who works hard and is deserving of the first share of the harvest. Hardship is in the picture. 
hardship for the soldier, hardship for the athlete, hardship for the farmer. But there is pleasure in the work. Eric Little famously said something like this. This is from the film. God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. The soldier, the athlete, the farmer, the Christian minister, the Christian leader, the Christian feels God's pleasure, even in hardship. The fourth picture, as Roger reminded us last week, is the worker with the word. There is in Ephesus bad teaching going on, teaching that destroys life. And Paul is exhorting Timothy and us to rightly handle the word of truth, literally to cut straight with the word, no spin, no sound bites, to cut straight, to tell it as it is, to open up our Bibles behind this lectern and to say what it says, to open up our Bibles in our small groups and say what it says. The soldier, the athlete, the farmer, the worker with the word. It seems, therefore, that the Christian leader is to be as tough as nails. Now, the portrait that I watched being constructed in London was of a fine Christian leader who was tough, uncompromising. And that toughness and that steel comes through strikingly in his portrait as it does in this portrait that Paul is painting of the Christian leader. But there are two more brush strokes tonight. The pure vessel, 20 to 21, and the Lord's servant, 22 to 26. These brush strokes are about godliness or holiness, graciousness, gentleness, patience, and kindness. Because toughness, Enduring hardship does not mean hardness or harshness because toughness goes with godliness. Now flip the coin. Godliness does not mean weakness because it goes with toughness, endurance, and hardship. In a portrait of the Christian leader I knew in London, there is toughness, but there is gentleness. And in that man's life, those of us who know him, there is toughness, an uncompromising commitment to the Word of God, a willingness to endure hardship now for future glory, but there is a godliness, a gentleness, a patient, humble dependence on the Lord. Now let's concentrate with that background on verses 20 to 26. I've divided them, you'll see on the handout, the pure vessel and the Lord's servant. That's helpful, I hope, but there is a common thread across these verses, 20 to 26, and that is the emphasis on godliness. Now, looking at the verses as a whole, 20 to 26, just look at where Paul puts them in his picture of the Christian leader, right next to where Roger was with us last week, the picture of godliness right next to the worker with a word, the Bible teacher. And if you go anywhere in the New Testament and look at the passages on the qualifications for Christian leadership, two things are always emphasized. 
the ability to teach, and a godly life. For example, in 1 Timothy, the qualifications for eldership and ability to teach in a godly life. And it's what Paul is impressing on Timothy here. It's what we see in Paul, and it is supremely what we see in the Lord Jesus. Jesus was a godly man who spoke words. Jesus was a godly man who spoke the gospel. And that is what we should look for in genuine Christian leaders who keep going with a consistency, an ability to teach and do so in a way that cuts straight with the Word, and a commitment to live a godly life. And all Christians, all Christians are called to these two marks, speaking the truth in love. That means telling the truth and being godly. You won't speak the truth in love if there is no commitment to godliness. Now, it is for this reason that the MAP program Rog leads focuses purposely on two areas. And there are 101 things you need to learn to be a church leader. But two years in the MAP program, we focus on two things for a lifetime of Christian service. Confidence, love for the Word and how to handle it, and personal godliness. These are the two foundations. Now, we are clear up front that a minister needs to be a soldier and an athlete and a farmer. And that's behind the kind of stuff we emphasize more with our ministers in training. But what makes a small group leader? What makes a Sunday club teacher? What makes a Christian minister? What makes a member of a small group effective? Is speaking the truth. You don't need to have the gift of the gab. Speaking the truth and a godly life. And what's so wonderful about that is that every Christian is able to speak the truth. And every Christian has everything they need for godliness. Now, let's look at each in turn. Firstly, the pure vessel, verses 20 to 21. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, the picture or the metaphor here is clear. Every house is equipped with vessels or utensils of different kinds, pots and pans in the like. That's true of your house and mine. You have the cutlery you use yourself, and you have the cutlery you use when the minister comes for dinner. And in a great house, like a stately home, like Downton Abbey, you would have much more variability in the good and the ordinary things that you use. There are the vessels of gold and silver, which are for honorable or noble use, in particular for the personal service of the master of the house. And there are vessels of wood and clay, which, apart from being cheaper in quality, are reserved for dishonorable or ignoble use, say, in the kitchen or below stairs in a stately home. And what is the point Paul is making? Well, the great house we can assume is God's house, the visible church in the world. But what are the vessels? 
Well, the use of the term elsewhere in the New Testament suggests they stand not simply for members of the church, but for the church's teachers. And therefore, the two sets of vessels in the great house represent true and false teachers in the church. So it is a link to what Paul has just said about those who rightly handle the word of truth and build lives, and those who don't in the church and destroy lives. Now, let's not miss in verse 21 the extraordinary privilege afforded to the genuine Christian leader, indeed the genuine Christian. They will be a vessel for honorable or noble use. They are set apart as holy. That means permanently consecrated to the work. They will be useful to the master, to the Lord Jesus. They will be ready for every good work. This is a privilege. Is it not worthwhile to be set apart, useful, ready for every good work? Now, the Master, the Lord Jesus, lays down one condition. One condition. Look closely at the beginning of verse 21. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable. That's a strong word. Cleanses. It means purify ourselves from any falsehood in our minds, any false teaching or false gospel. But the stronger emphasis in that word cleanses is to purify ourselves from a godless life. Purity of doctrine, what we teach and say, and purity of life, how we live, is the essential condition of being useful to and ready to serve the Lord Jesus. Now, I think that's the correct interpretation, and it's supported by the fact that the, two that the metaphor of great house and its vessels in verses 20 and 21 is sandwiched in between two clear allusions to personal godliness or personal holiness. On the one side, look at verse 19, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, and on the other, verse 22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Now, four comments before we turn to verses 22 to 26. Number one, what is godliness or holiness that we are to exhibit? Practically, what is it? What does it look like? Fundamentally, as we have sung tonight, godliness is Christness. Christness, not Christ-likeness. It is actually Him in us. It's what Paul goes on to describe in verses 22 to 26, as we'll see in a moment. It is the opposite of what Paul describes in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And it is all that he has already said about the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, and the worker with the Word. That's what godliness is, Christness. Comment two, why is the emphasis on what we are to do rather than on what God has done? That's unusual. Look at the logic, the order in verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. Wouldn't we expect it to be the other way around? The Christian is someone who is set apart, and therefore they should cleanse themselves from what is dishonorable. 
Now, Paul is not contradicting the normal pattern in his writing of putting the promises before the commands or the indicatives before the imperatives. He's not contradicting his normal pattern of saying what God has done in us before what we are to do. He is simply, in this letter, emphasizing his point with an urgency. It's not a gentle reminder to the Christian leader or the small group leader or any of us as Christians to think about these things. It is a wake-up call to Timothy and to us. Third comment. Why does godliness equal usefulness? What is the connection between our godliness and our usefulness to Jesus? Surely God doesn't depend on our godliness to do what he will do. Surely he doesn't need us. That is quite correct. He doesn't need us. Moreover, he might still use us at times in our lives when we are indifferent or lax with respect to personal godliness. If your minister is lax with respect to personal godliness, sooner or later, it will find him out. It will be exposed. But it might be months and months and months that God continues to use us. God is well able to draw a straight line with a blunt pencil. All that is true, but God's Word says here our usefulness equates to our godliness at a practical level in the day-to-day of church life or the Christian life or in a CU's life. God is just not going to use us if he can't trust us. He is not going to use us in his service over the long haul in our lives Because rather than giving his gospel authenticity, we will cause people to trip up by how we live. Here's a famous Scottish minister from the 19th century who said this, Remember you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto God to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much, as great likeness to Christ. A holy minister is a mighty weapon in the hands of God. Now let me bring that down to earth in case we see people like Robert Murray McChain as saints of old in your small group. Why is godliness so important for your leader? Why is godliness in a small group leader useful to the Lord Jesus? Apply that to any member of a small group. Why is our godliness useful to God? Why? Because a leader who is wholly godly is convicted about your spiritual well-being. Because a leader who is godly will tell you the truth. Because a leader who is godly will ask you questions. Because they care. A leader who is godly will set an example to you of how to live. They will know when they look you in the eye what it means to fight sin. They know how hard it is. They will be prayerful. They will have a deep affection for the Lord Jesus. Affections that come through in the way they lead and teach a Bible study in the way they speak of spiritual truths. There will be no casualness or indifference in their leading of Bible studies, in their follow-up, their texts, whatever it is they do. Their affections for Jesus will stir up your affections for Jesus. That is why 
it matters. Last comments before we move on. Do not confuse godliness with sinlessness. You are not going to be sinless until you are with Jesus in the new creation. Until then, it is going to be an ongoing battle with sin and temptation. Battling with sin and temptation, that is holiness in this life. There is worth and there is pleasure, though, in the battle. Don't ever let anyone tell you there's not. This life is about progress, not perfection. What does progress feel like? For an athlete, progress makes you feel even more exhausted. Progress in the Christian life makes you feel often that you are more and more ungodly. That is because you are more conscious of sin. Your conscience is alive. Things you have never thought about, now you do. Battles with sin you have never fought, now you are. That is progress, and there will be many times when you fall and fail and go backwards, but over time, people will see in you character and life, godliness that points them to Jesus. Just as I say this, you're reminded again, this is why you cannot be a lone ranger Christian. You need each other. You need church. You need the Bible. You need 2 Timothy. You need small groups. That's the pure vessel. It's worthwhile. Second, the Lord's servant. Now, I've taken the title, The Lord's Servant, from verse 24. They are great verses. Let me read them again. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured to do his will. Now, in the preceding verses 20 and 21, Paul contrasted pure and impure vessels, representing true and false teachers, godly and ungodly leaders. And Paul is not writing to Timothy hypothetically. Timothy, as the church leader in Ephesus, is surrounded by false teachers living ungodly lives. And Paul is calling Timothy to something that is hard, to be different, to be a true teacher of the Word and a pure vessel, a godly leader. And in verses 22 to 26, again, that contrast is there. There is the right kind of leader and the wrong kind of leader. The right kind of leader is the one who calls on the Lord from a pure heart, who is a true servant of the Lord. The wrong kind of leader, the false teacher, the end of verse 26, people who are in the snare of the devil, captured by him to do his will. Now, Paul is not writing in the realm of an interesting conversation in Costa. He is saying to us, taking us by the scruff of our necks, and he's saying, flee and pursue. Elsewhere in his writing, he says, put off and put on. Here he's saying, flee youthful passions, whatever they are, and pursue righteousness and love. We're not to mull over this stuff. We're to flee what is wrong and pursue what is right. What then are these youthful passions? Not what you think. They are not passions of the flesh like lust. The word Paul uses refers to another kind of passion. It is hot-headedness, 
It is an argumentative, opinionated, arrogant attitude and way of speaking. It is the opposite of verse 24. Youthful passions mean quarrelsome, unkind, impatient, harsh. That ungodly way of speaking closely tied to the ungodly content of what is said, foolish, ignorant controversies that breed That is what we are to flee, hard, harsh, arrogant, dismissive, quarrelsome speaking. And instead, we are to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. In verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. There is a godly way of speaking, a Christ-like way of speaking. And if you think in this portrait into Timothy of the Lord Jesus, you're spot on. What he said was truth. How he said it was gracious. Graciousness is not compromising on truth. We are to rightly handle the word of truth. Look at verse 24 in the beginning of verse 25 in in detail. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind. That's godliness. Able to teach, that's telling the truth. Patiently enduring evil, back to godliness. Correcting his opponents, telling the truth. With gentleness. How do you correct someone who is opposing you as a leader? You tell the truth. You teach God's word. But you do not do it in an argumentative, hot-headed, opinionated, arrogant, or harsh way. Even if you are on the receiving end of that. You are not to be quarrelsome, but kind. You are to patiently endure what is said to you or about you. You are to correct people with gentleness. Why? Not because it's a good tactic. Not because it disarms people. But because it is Christ's way. It is Jesus' way. It is not the way of the world nor of our human natures. It is the way of the kingdom of God and our redeemed natures as Christians. We will never persuade people by arguing with them in a godless way. Don't fight passion in the sense that Paul uses passion here, with passion. Respond in grace, with truth. Respond in love, with truth. Now, that is the attitude of the Lord's servant. It is the attitude of the Lord. And the Lord's servant knows that they are not able to persuade anyone to repent, let alone grant anyone repentance. Only the Lord can do that. Which is what Paul says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance. Now, let me give you four examples of what this might look like. Number one, a Christian minister who faces antagonistic opposition from people in the church they lead. These are not made-up examples. Or a Christian leader in another context, perhaps in a Bible college or leading in a CU who faces opposition, hostile, antagonistic opposition from people they work or serve with, 
What do you do? You speak the truth to them. You try to persuade them from the Bible of the position you are taking. You try to answer their questions, however aggressively asked from the Bible. Be gracious in response to their aggression. Look for ways, pray for ways to show kindness to them. And go to bed at night and sleep at night and leave it in God's hands because you cannot change their hearts. You can't. Looking back over the years, I have been in ministry leadership. There are times which I regret. And I'm not just saying that. If you want to know what they are, I'm happy to tell you afterwards. When I did not do these things, time when I reacted to fire with fire, aggression with aggression. There are times, though, when by God's grace I was able to be patient and gentle. And while it never led the people that I was engaging with to a knowledge of the truth, it did lead others who were listening to be persuaded of the truth. But it's not easy, which is why Paul says, flee and pursue. Number two example, a Christian in conversation with someone who goes to a very different kind of church who is antagonistic towards a particular position your church takes on an issue. For example, morality, how we live as Christians. What do you do? Again, it would be very easy to do nothing or say nothing, and there are occasions when we shouldn't, when there is no possibility of someone listening. But for their sake spiritually and for the sake of the Lord Jesus, what you do is correct them if they are wrong. That sounds so countercultural, but it's loving. How do you do it, though? Patiently. Biblically. Prayerfully. Show them kindness. And as you commit to personal godliness through your life, allow God to use your distinctiveness to affect them. Third example, a discussion in a small group on an important issue when there is disagreement. Not to the same degree as Paul is speaking about here. We're not talking about foolish, ignorant controversies that breed quarrels. We're not talking about people in the snare of the devil. We're just talking about a discussion in a small group on, say, a secondary issue, but still an important issue. For example, how we engage with justice issues as Christians. The extent to which we should and to the extent to which they relate to the gospel. How do you have such discussions? How do you lead a small group discussion on these matters? How do you contribute to that discussion? By looking together. By listening to what the Bible says. By gently asking the question, show me where you see that in the Bible. And by listening to yourself and the way you are speaking. The final example, a very mundane, super ordinary, and I'll leave it for you to guess if it's uh, personal to me or just made up. Uh, how about a Christian leader or a Christian who is tired or a small group leader who is tired and frustrated at a meeting at the end of a long day and they get grumpy and they interrupt people. Roger is smiling, so it must be true of me. What do you do? You just say sorry. That's the stuff of this. If that kind of thing, just that simple mundane example went on group after group, week after week, what is somebody going to do? Think of Corinthians, the weaker Christian. What are they, they're not going to come anymore. They're just not going to come. 
There are some practical examples. Now, we're done. There's the portrait of the Christian leader, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, the worker, with a word, the pure vessel, the Lord's servant. Is it a description of the Lord, the apostle? It's what Paul wants Timothy, his son in the faith, to be. It is what the Lord commands of us all. Questions, will we endure suffering as a soldier? Will we run the race? Will we work hard? Will we submit to the word and tell it straight? Will we be zealous about godliness? Will we pursue righteousness, faith, love, humility, patience, gentleness? As you walk around the portrait gallery, if you do in town, this is a picture to Timothy, were it to be drawn and on the wall that you would stop and look at. You couldn't help it. This is a picture you would be drawn to this is a picture that commends its subject. This is the person I want to be like because the subject behind the Christian leader or the small group leader or the Sunday club teacher or just every Christian, the picture behind the picture is Jesus Christ. How many times do you think the Lord Jesus or God is mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 2? 21 times. 21 times, 21 times the Lord Jesus is etched on to the portrait of the Christian leader or the Christian worker. And it is his spirit who lives in you, who gives you everything you need for life, for godliness, to be a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, a worker, a pure vessel, a servant, Patient, gracious, kind, gentle. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to the Lord's table, help us to remember the very heart of our Christian faith, Jesus Christ who died to forgive our sins, who rose to give us life, and put his spirit in us to enable us to live in accordance with this description. Will you help us to concentrate now at the end of a long day? And will you help us to listen to what you are saying to us tonight from your word? And will you take us to the cross and to the indwelling spirit of the risen Christ who makes it possible for us so to live? For Jesus' sake. Amen.